Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Conversational. My name is Julie Rame, and my fabulous guest today is the one and only, the incomparable Michael Casson. So for those of you, I honestly don't know how anybody could not know who you are, but if you're one of the few living under a rock who hasn't been introduced in some way to Michael Casson, let me tell you a little bit about him before we start chatting. So first of all, he's currently the founder, chairman, and CEO of MediaLink, which is a firm that I get if people haven't heard of. I say that, you know, being in the industry, obviously I've heard of it, but the, the, the firm itself is designed actually not to necessarily be the front. It's there to be the connector. It is there to actually put its clients in front and its clients is what makes it unique is this combination of both who you would consider in the marketing and advertising world clients, the brand and the agencies and agencies of all sorts. It could be Google's, it could be, you know, the Omnicom or the, the WPP, the BBDOs, all those agencies you've heard of that's their kind of their sweet spot. In addition to doing lots of other things that they evolved into, which we'll get into a little bit, but Michael himself is the founder. This was his baby. And I was, I'm super proud to say I knew him exactly at the moment that he was birthing this baby when it was uh, just a him. Um, And what he's built it into is just nothing short of unbelievable. And I feel really great to have had a front row seat to watching it happen. Julie, I I would give you more credit than just a front row seat. (laughs) You were an active participant. You you actually got on the stage with me a few times, if you will, literally and figuratively to help me do it because you were a bold-faced name uh, in this industry when I started MediaLink. And, you know, you were one of those people at the beginning that always took my call and always took the time and always gave me that welcome mat. So uh, I just want to say you were more than a, 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 a viewer, you were a participant. Well, thank you. I, yeah, I'm not stupid. I, I see, I see, well, I was, I saw who you were. I was like, of course I would take your call, you know, even in the day, you didn't have to have to, you didn't have to be, you didn't have to be clairvoyant to know what kind of, um, what kind of person you were. And I mean, person, not just because of your connections and your power, but of your heart and your nature, that those are the kinds of people you want in your life. And people, as I say, culture eats strategy for lunch and people are everything. So, all right, quickly more about you. So they know just how, how amazing you are beyond just the, just the ultimate power broker. Um, he's also got a team right now, the global team, more than 125 specialists providing counsel for navigating the age of digital disruption in areas including, and I told you it wasn't just um, brokering companies together, but marketplace development, talent and organizations, they do some search, brand transformations, data and technology, agency optimization, and investor strategies. But before that, in 2019, um, before just this pandemic, he was inducted into the American Advertising Federation's Hall of Fame, which is the highest honor you can get in this industry. He's known for his ability to just see opportunities and to seize the, just to, to seize them like no other, including doing things above and beyond what you would expect, like redefining CES, the Can Lion event, the Mobile World Congress, and just those events wouldn't be what they are today without his his background and what he has put into them. So he founded this whole media link in 2003. But before then, he was president, COO, and vice chairman of Initiative Media Worldwide. He was president and COO of the International Video Entertainment, so Artisan Entertainment. 
And he's got more awards than than there is time on this podcast, but a few of them. He is top media executive in America by Ad Age, and in 2018 was honored on Adweek's Power 100 list and on a ver- and Variety's index of the 500 most influential business leaders shaping the global entertainment industry. He's been named to the Hollywood Reporters, this one's my favorite, Silicon Beach 25 list of most powerful digital p- players in LA. Anything with beach in it is an award I want. Uh, he's also served on the board of the Hollywood Radio and Television Society, Commission on California State Government Organization and Economy, and the Culture Affairs Commission, City of Los Angeles, and has been chairman of the State Senate Select Committee on the Entertainment Industry, which is really cool because you may not know, I know it, he's a lawyer. So he's also a strong supporter of community and not-for-profit programs. He currently serves as chair of the UJA New York Marketing Communications Committee, and I'm always like honored to be an honorary member of the Jewish community. I'm, I'm not, but you know, I like to pretend. Um, and then a board member of the American Advertising Federation Ad Council and the Paley Center for Media. So again, in addition to having just created something outstanding, he has given back in spades. And there's not a person who literally has touched the marketing or advertising industry who A, doesn't know him or can't attribute some level of their success, whether it was direct or indirect, I think in some way, to who you are, Mr. Casson. Thank you for coming and being my- Oh, Julie, Julie, I I never knew I would sit through a a description of my evil twin brother. That's so good. (laughs) Oh, you are are so deserving of all of that. Well, you're so kind to say that. And and, and, um, it, it, I, I, I shudder to think, but thank you, Julie. Thank well, you. Well, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about, so I, I will share with everybody listening, I try to do a pre-call with my guests, even, even guests that I have known 20 plus years, like Michael, just to say like what to expect on, on my, my podcast in case they haven't heard one. And I, you know, I always say, look, I'll start off by asking you where you were born, what your parents did. I was like, so just can you like some of that early stuff, if I don't remember, will you give me some of those points and like key holy shit moments in your life? Cause you know that that's what this is about. And Michael, so the first ever guest I've ever had that was like, nope, you need to read this book for enemies. You read that, that will tell you everything that you don't know about me already. And that will be it. And so I, I was scrambling because we did this call and now this got delayed a week, but I scrambled and I stayed up till midnight one night and I cranked through this book. And it was such a great read. The book, by the way, for everybody, is called Frenemies, The Epic Disruption of the Ad Business and in parens and everything else. And for me, it was such a joy to read because it was almost like reading the diaries of people, like people that I knew. Some I can call friends like Michael. There's other people in there like Wenda Millard, who is a partner or was a partner with Michael in media link for a while, but I interviewed her. She's been a guest on the podcast as well. Um, there's, it was the most surreal read for me because of that. And so Michael, and I know we talked about a surreal read for you because while you knew you were going to be featured in the book, you didn't know you were going to be the feature in the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's for sure, Julie. I tell you, um, I had a holy shit moment in my own life when I read the book before its publication and then kind of to bring it full circle when it was published in June of 2018. Uh, it came out just around the time of the Can Lions that year. And I got on that Delta uh, flight that everybody tries to book from New York to Nice, the direct flight. And I got on the plane 
and I knew that, you know, Frenemies was coming out right then. And I knew that at the Cannes Lions that year, it would be, it would be a topic. It was a topic du jour. It had just been, it had just been released. And I got on the plane and literally there were five people on the plane reading the book in hard copy when I got on the plane. And I, I said, thank God this is an overnight flight. So I can just go to sleep, put the covers over my head because I literally was freaked out to be honest. And then you get on the plane and literally five people are holding the book up reading and I'm going, Oh my God. I have to ask when you landed and you woke up, had they stayed up all night, like reading the book? I hope so. No. Oh, I'm like, did they look at you and ask you questions? I can't, that would have been. I kind of, it was very funny because I was fortunate to sit in the front of the plane and I, that flight, for some reason I got the bulkhead. So I was literally the front (laughs) row and so I didn't see a lot behind me. And, you know, so I, except when I got to go up to go to the bathroom, I, that's when I realized it. And I did stop along the way on the way back. And one, one, one gal was holding the book and I kind of peeked over her shoulder to see what page she was on. And it was one that had a lot of personal stuff on it. And I went, oh, God. And I turned away and kept walking <laughs> to my seat. But uh, yeah, oh. it, it, it was uh, daunting uh, around that period. But, but uh, uh, all in all, all in all, it was good. Uh, it was a good experience. But there, there is that moment, uh, you know, it's wonderful to see your name in lights. It's not so wonderful when everyone's looking at it. So. Well, it's, it, it's really, I'm sure it felt really raw. I mean, at some point, because we'll, we'll get to that, because I want to have people get a little grounding on where you came from and, and how you got to where you are, because that is, obviously, it's covered in the book. But I, that is really what's most fascinating, because I think you had a series of holy shit moments, you know, in your very early life. Um, and without them, I, look, and this I wouldn't is, be who I am without them. Well, you wouldn't, of course, none of us would be who we are without our early, but I, you wouldn't, I think the empathy, the, the reason why you're so successful is because not only your, just your, your special talent, but your true empathy for people. And I think that empathy and that lack of judgment and that always willingness to see what you see versus what the world what tells you you should see is because of your own experiences. And I think I, I, I relate to that, of course, but that is something that is super unique and you have been able to make it your superpower and make it your business. And that well, really, Julie, unique. the thing I will, I will say, thank you for that. The thing I would modify in what you said is I hope I don't have a lack of judgment, but what I do have is no desire to be judgmental. I think that's fair. That's, and that's what I meant for sure. Yeah, no, no, no. And I know that, but, but there's a big difference because yep. I, I relate this to something else. Um, I'm extraordinarily proud of the, the um, best thing I've done <coughs> excuse me, in my life, which was together with my wife, raising three great children. And, you know, people have said to me for years, gee, Michael, you and Ronnie really, you know, your kids turned out really well and they were not spoiled. They were indulged. I'm honest about that. And I could spend a whole podcast talking about the difference between indulging children and spoiling children. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer that indulging is okay. I'm an equally big believer in spoiling is not okay. Right. And there's a difference. I agree. But 
when people say to me, what were some of the secrets of how it turned out? Because, you know, you and Ronnie were fortunate to have a big life. And generally speaking, or not generally, but oftentimes when the parents have a big life, the kids suffer. They don't benefit, if that makes any sense. Sure. And so people kind of like, what, what was your secret? I said, well, there were two teaching our children, maybe more than two, but the two that I like to point to were the need to teach your children balance. It's unrealistic to presume that as they're growing up, they're not going to do something they shouldn't or something they should, but you want to make sure they don't do too much of that, which they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And they also shouldn't do too much of that, which they should. You don't want to have, you know, robots. And on the other hand, everyone has their you know, moments where they try things or experience things. And so we would always tell our kids have balance. Don't do too much of anything. You know, they're going to have a drink, but don't drink all the time. You know, they're going to try certain things. Just don't do it all the time. Be acknowledge that. And the other thing was we tried never to be judgmental Mm -hmm. because if you're not, then it opens up the ability for them to come to you and talk to you because you they know you're not going to judge them. And so I've tried to take that logic that worked well with our children and apply it to business and to interaction and people. Cause I think business is personal and personal is business. And I, I tell you a funny tagline that changed my life back in the late eighties, uh, Pac Bell Pacific telephone, mm-hmm. which was then the local carrier here in Southern California did a brilliant campaign and the campaign was trying to get people to use their business phones. Because in the old days, if you had a home phone, you paid a flat fee per month. And the only thing you paid for was imagine this word today, a toll call. People don't know what that means, but, but a toll call, you know what it means. Oh yeah. I, okay. I, I had a card I had to use, right. for toll right. Calls. But, but so it, on your home phone, you paid a flat fee and you only paid extra for a toll call on your business line. You had a set amount of calls and anything over that set amount, you had to pay per call. So Pactel was trying to get people to use their business phones more often. Mm-hmm. And so the tagline was some of the best business calls are personal. <coughs> that tagline shows you the importance of marketing, that tagline changed my life. Hmm. Because you took it to heart. Because I took it to heart. Yeah. Don't only call the business person when you have something about business to talk to them about. Build a relationship. Right. Which you Talk about their kids literally. Talk about what's happening in their life. Don't just talk about, I've got this to sell and I want you to buy, or here's the advice you need. You build a relationship. You and I did. Oh my God, you used to- You and I built a personal relationship as friends, even more than business at the beginning. We just liked each other and and you called me for advice. I called you for advice and I'd run shit past you that I knew you'd never buy at Chrysler in those days when I first met you. But, you know, I knew that I'd get your advice and I knew that I could establish a personal relationship with you. The business would come if it was supposed to, but you don't have to force that. But again, that tagline- Imagine a tagline of a, a, an ad campaign. Maybe they won a, a, a Clio or a Lion, but it it won for me because it really impacted my life. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's well, we share this. Well, we'll we'll get to it, but we share this. It, it was all personal. I mean, you used to come when I was at Chrysler, and you just would sit across and 
we just chat. I mean, there wasn't, sometimes there just wasn't anything necessarily that made sense for us, but it didn't matter. We just, yeah. Some of the best meetings I have are those, what I would call Seinfeld meetings. They're meetings about nothing, yada, right. yada, yada. Like, you <laughs> right. know, it's, and, that, right. uh, I have those all the time and they lead to good things usually either right, personally because, or business-wise. Well, because you build trust with people and that's what makes the difference. All right. So tell us, okay. So tell us where we, what did your parents do? Like, how did, how did you get to be like you at the early age? So I, I, um, if you ask my sisters, they would answer the question differently. <clears throat> Having grown up as, as the only son with uh-huh. two older sisters, my sisters would say I was the son S-U-N. So um, maybe, that, maybe that explains a bit yeah. of my personality, but. Um, Where were you in the lineup of the, with the. I was the baby. Babe, so, that's, okay. Even more the son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was the, I was the only son and the baby. It, it did two things for me. Um, it, it put me in touch with my feminine side much earlier. Mm-hmm. I yeah. never went through the, I don't like girls part. I always liked girls. I never went through that part. Yeah. I was the first one in my, in my friends to have a girlfriend and my friends all made fun of me. And I went, it's okay. You can make fun of me. You'll, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll get the joke soon. Yeah. I got the playing field to myself, but you no, know, I, I, I mean that I was born in Brooklyn and, and we moved to California uh, in 1953. So I really grew up in California. Uh, as you know, I just turned 70. So uh, you know, I was three years old when we moved, uh, when we got in the Conestogas and crossed the plains. Um, you know, it was a 12 hour flight back then, uh, you know, probably with a stop in Chicago. But uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, but I had an advantage. And the advantage was my grandparents and close aunts and uncles still lived in New York. So in the 50s, which was unusual, I had a bi coastal life. So I was raised in California, but I had a strong New York influence. And in those days, the lines of demarcation between the left and the right coast were way more stark than they are today. Mm -hmm. New York was eons ahead in fashion, in life, in in culture, in all the things that make New York, New York. And I had the benefit of growing up in LA, but spending all that time in New York as a kid made a big difference for me. I I would come back after spending summers with my grandparents in the Catskill Mountains and I'd come back and I was different. Yeah, I believe that. I thought differently. Yeah. I thought differently, I dressed differently. It was just New York mentality. That sort of New York state of mind. And you, how did you decide to be a lawyer? How did that so I went to, when I went to college, I was pre-dental. I wanted to be a dentist of all things. I think that's quiet, right? <laughs> and like many things, you choose those based on people you look up to. Or And I had a, my first cousin who was kind of like a big brother was a dentist. And I thought, I want to be like Jay. Yeah. Like, that's what, that's what I want to do. And my freshman year of college, I was pre-medical, you know, you'd have to, you know, whatever you'd set out and pre-dental, pre-medical. And about six weeks in, I said, uh, this is not, I mean, I was in college. I wasn't in dental school, but I I said, I'm more the arts guy, not the science guy. I don't, I don't, this isn't for me. And I 
called my parents and remember, and I said, this was 1967. I remember saying, I think I want to be a lawyer. I don't think I want to, you know, go into dentistry. It's more natural for me. You know, I'm, I'm a ham. I, I kind of always was. So I think I'd probably do better in that context, you know, using whatever gifts I had in persuasion and other things, uh, you know, applying it into, into the law. And I, and I, and I realized I wanted more of a business career than a, than a medical or a dental career. And I thought law would be a great way to have that opportunity because the likelihood of going from law to business is more likely than going from dentistry to, you know, I mean, just yep. if you're looking at the, at the, the percentages. So that was it. And, and, and then I realized I didn't want to actually do litigation and be in court. I really was interested in the business side. And so I went to law school and then I did a master's degree in taxation at NYU. So for the 10 years that I did practice law, Julie, I practiced as a tax lawyer and was certified, you know, to do that. So I got into tax planning and, and you know, being creative where I found in tax, it was the area of law where you had a chance to be more creative, I guess, because within the context of the law, there's a very famous Supreme Court case that says nobody has a patriotic duty to pay more than their fair share of taxes. So if you can be creative within the context of the rules and regulations, you you're, not breaking, you're not breaking the law to be creative. And right. I thought, great, this is a place where I could apply my, that, 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 brain, that side of my brain to, to being a lawyer. So I did that for 10 years. But for me, it was always a means to an end. I didn't know what the end would be, but I knew I wouldn't practice law forever. Right. And you... And I love this story of how, like, I mean, in terms of being bicoastal, it was also in terms of your education, right? Your undergrad and then your grad, but you met Ronnie. It's a great story. Of how, so Ronnie, your wife, as so some right. people know, uh, you met Ronnie and I, it's such a Casson, it's such a Michael sort of story, you know, and I didn't know it actually, I read it in the book. So I didn't, <laughs> we all got to know a lot about how Ronnie made work for it now exactly. literally <laughs> literally and figuratively um, will, you, yeah, will you hear the story to ronnie when when i read that galley i said did you really need to say that and she said well he asked me to tell the story i said yeah but ronnie, you know there's certain things that might have been better kept between us but uh, no it's true and 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 there's a, a part of the story which i don't remember if it made it into frenemies but um have you ever seen the movie sliding doors yes with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, right? <coughs> yes, excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah, go yeah ahead. it was a small movie, but but it did very well. Oh, it was think. great. Yeah, mm. it was great. And just the so you know, sliding she... doors part of the sliding doors part of my story, which I don't think was in the book, was when I asked Ronnie out for the first time. She said, "Well, I don't know. I may, uh, she was surprised I called her. It's a long story as to how." I got her phone number. I was dropping something off for a friend and, and, and she opened the door and right. I was smitten. But <clears throat> when I called her to ask her out, she said, well, I don't know. I may be going to Palm Springs for the weekend. Right. She had just moved here from New York a year and a half earlier after she went to graduate school and Ronnie's got her master's in, in psychology and she had moved out here 
she had broken up with a boyfriend, moved out to California, wanted to kind of change her life. And she was just ready to move back to New York because she was kind of, eh, California, not so much, going to go back to New York. And we met just then. And so I asked her out. She told me she didn't know. And then she didn't call me back. And yeah. I asked her out on Tuesday for Saturday, which was a big thing for me in those days. I was usually last minute Charlie, you know, I'll ask you out on Saturday morning. But yeah. in her case, I asked her out on Tuesday. By Friday, I hadn't heard from her. The sliding doors moment, I was working as a law clerk uh, in Beverly Hills. I was in school, but I, I had a job as well uh, working for a law firm. And it was lunch hour. And I was crossing the street at the corner of Wilshire and Beverly Drive. That's Walking the across the street the other way was Ronnie. Yeah. And we ran into each other yeah. in the middle of the street. And I said, I'd only seen her once before. So I wasn't even sure it was her. But I said, yeah. whoa. I, I, and we're literally in the middle of the street. And I said, well, I guess you didn't go to Palm Springs. And she was mortified. Okay. She never called me back. She said, no, no, I meant to call you. I can go out. Yeah. And I said, huh. okay. Well, had we not been crossing the street. Yeah, who knows? That story is in the book, by the way. She's, 46 years later, 46 years later, we wouldn't be sitting here happily married. So there you With go. The kids and grandkids and the brood of kids. I know I love this story because she then goes on to share how like she was like, OK, now I got to go out like I, I can't hide anymore. And you went out and then it wasn't too much longer later. And it was really at this point of transition with you both kind of making your way to New York. Yeah. And she said, she shares a story where she was on the phone and I'm doing this from memory, not looking at my notes, but she was on the phone with somebody about a no, she, wedding. Her best friend, her best friend was getting married a wedding, and, Ronnie right? was the, yeah. and Ronnie was the maid of honor. Yeah. Um, and she, I, she said, when I asked her to marry, I, I didn't ask her to marry me yet, but I, she told me, I stopped at her apartment and she said to me, I just want you to know, cause I had told her I loved her and she hadn't responded. Yeah. So she said, <laughs> I just want to tell you that I love you. And I yeah. said, okay, well, I guess I should go to New York with you. And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, I knew what I meant. I said, yeah. well, you're going to New York for Randy, her friend Randy's wedding. I said, I guess I should go. She said, well, I'm not invited with a date. I said, cause she wasn't like dating somebody that anyone right. knew about. Right. And I said, well, but if she's your best friend, I'm sure you could call her and tell her you wanted to bring somebody to the wedding. And, you know, the power of suggestion works. And Ronnie says, yeah, you're right. And she yeah. dialed the phone. And as she dials, she literally took the phone and cupped it to her chest as, as it was ringing and said, who do I tell her I'm bringing? Like, no one knows about you. Right. I said, your fiance. Yeah. That's, that's, in the, that's in the book. I love that story. It's a great story because it's also such a Michael Castle. This is what I think. This is the great story. Like they're running into it and like, nope, this is like, you just have to trust me. This is meant to be. And, and it's, well, it's, it's a, it's, it's a transition, Julie, not to a question, but to a further answer. You know, I, I, I describe myself to others when asked with a couple of words, one is opportunistic in a good way, not a pejorative way. Because I generally think I'm good at identifying opportunities. The second word I use is a capitalist, because I think I'm better than the average bear at capitalizing on those opportunities when I see them. The third word is a merchandiser, because I think once I identify an opportunity, figure out a way to capitalize on it, what I think I'm really good at is merchandising it. 
And then the fourth word that I've added to that list, uh, uh, which is immodest, but I'm, uh, uh, I guess it's okay in this context to be a little immodest. I think I'm a really good storyteller. So if you're an opportunist who can figure out a way to capitalize on opportunities, then merchandise it and be able to tell good stories about it or about whatever it is, it's a good combination. And if I think of the things that the, the things that make me, me, I think those, those, you know, those four things are critical and, yes. and, and, and foundational really. Yeah. I think, well, I love it as a segue to, to, and I, it's a book, so I know you, you know, it's, it's one of those things I, I probably wouldn't have asked you about, but you know, it's, it's in the book and, and I, I think it tells the, what you've just talked about, about relationship having good judge, having good judgment and also being a storyteller be, is really key because after law school, your biggest holy shit moment, which is what I'm sure you felt was like the, the thing that you didn't want to talk about to people. And I remember you revealing it to me when we first met. So it isn't right. as you were hiding from it. You were very, but, but I know it's something that you, you carried with you is you, you carried it as like a big weight on your back. And the way that I, I never really dug into, because it didn't matter to me because I know who you are, but the story that you have, and I'll let you just tell the story about working for this law firm and, and sort of the situation that occurred with, um, I think it was with Pollo Loco, wasn't it? Right. Um, during them was, you know, it, it, it obviously didn't end well, but the story, the way that it ended, it didn't end well in terms of, I think the, the little picture, the the picture, right. The little picture, the big picture it did, because I even think that what the judge had said after the fact is so you ended up in a situation and it, in the moment it didn't feel good or look good, but anybody who looked deeper would understand that actually you were such a good, honest person. And that this, this, that moment in time for me, explain so much about your, your willingness and eagerness to reach out. I always say when you started media link, it was like the land of misfit toys. And I was one of your misfit toys, by the way. So I can say this with honesty, but I think you do that because you see talent where people have decided that there's a flaw and we all have flaws. Some of our flaws are just more overt and bigger. And, but you see, you see the goodness and the, the potential and you use it to your advantage. I mean, you kind of get it on the cheap, right? <laughs> but yeah, anyway, no, tell the story. Listen, I, I've experienced my own, so it's always easier. But I'm happy to say this, and I'm proud to say this. Yes, my own experience refined that emotion or that base for me. But that's always who I was. Oh, I believe I, that. I, that. That the good, the bad, and the ugly is I didn't change my way or my view based on my experience, but it brought it into focus for me and realized that I had to apply what I generally would do for others for myself. Yeah. That, that was what, that, that's, that's, that's the, that's the issue. And, and I'll tell you this, um, I'll, I'll put it in the context of a TV show. You know, there's many TV series that you've liked or I've liked or anybody will like. And, and, and if you look at the concept of run of the show, um, do you judge, a TV show by any particular episode, or do you judge it by all the episodes? That's right. The whole series. And I, right. You know, the, the, excuse me, the run of the series. I used Seinfeld earlier, but 
you know, uh, there were certain episodes of Seinfeld that stick out to me. There were some that probably weren't so good, but, but the run of the show, in fact, we're watching something on Netflix right now. We're in season four. We loved the first three seasons. Season four is not quite as good. And Ronnie turned to me the other day and said, are you going to stop watching? And I said, no, no, no. I, we're going to finish it. A couple more episodes. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, and, and it, it refreshed in my mind how I look at life. Yeah. You don't look at life as that one episode. You look at life as the run of the show. Where I was fortunate was the run of the show for me was pretty good. I had a bad episode, but that bad episode didn't make my life a bad show. It just meant I had a bad episode. And it was a, it was a, it was a very bad episode for me because it demonstrated the lack of what I pride myself on, which is good judgment. And I didn't exercise good judgment. And like what you teach your children or people in business, you have a consequence for making bad decisions. And you have to carry that with you because life doesn't allow you to rewind the tape. If you could, life would be different. It's what I say about golf. Uh, I wish golf was 12 holes and one out of two. I'd be a much better golfer if it was one out of two. You don't get a chance to do that. You don't get a mulligan in life. Right. That's right. Unfortunately, you may get a second chance. I think we're in a market and a world today where second chances become more difficult. Yeah. Because social media and things of that sort make second chances much more difficult in, in, in this environment. And people are being what I hope people are not, which is too damn judgmental mm -hmm. without knowing the facts and not without knowing the circumstances. So, you know, that, that's what I'd love to say about that. The yeah. run of the show the circumstances, you know, if I stub my toe by myself, or if you step on my toe and hurt it, at the end of the day, my toe still hurts. Yeah. You know, and, and again, my lack of being judgmental has always been, and Julie, you know this firsthand, because we've lived through this together. I look at somebody and say, um, Again, I'm not going to judge you by this or that. I'm going to look at the whole person. I'm going to look at the whole story. But um, I've always been someone who does not judge people by the circumstance they're in. I judge people by how they deal with it. Yeah. Because you can be in a circumstance for a whole host of reasons. The idea of stubbing your toe or someone hurting you, it doesn't matter. You've got a bad toe now. What, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. doesn't matter if I did it myself or if you did it to me. I now have to deal with it. I have to take that next step, if you will. And how do you do that? Because people end up in circumstances, as I say, for a whole host of reasons, sometimes their own fault, sometimes, you know, extraneous circumstances. But what the hell do you do when you're in that moment? How do you deal with it? How do you conduct yourself? Well, so, and I love, does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I think what you're saying is what I, what I liked about what how – it was written in the book, this, you know, the whole episode, and we won't go through the whole thing. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it was, you were, in a, just so people have an understanding, it was 95. I'm just, I want to read just a piece of what the Superior Court judge, yes, you were found guilty. This was, but what I love is how he decided, he says, he ruled that your motive in, in taking money was not personal greed, but a desire to keep El Pollo Loco alive. So you won, you won leniency when you reach an agreement with the, with the prosecutors, et cetera. And I think that tells the story is that it's like, yes, it's a judgment call, 
but you you were doing it out of what you thought was the best interest in the best interest of your of your client. You were trying to be helpful to your client, not do anything better for yourself. And I think that that's where I thought that that was a really great lesson learned um, in that in that even a judge whose job it is to, you know, obviously render judgment the way that you were talking about is able to see even though he didn't know you, he was able to look at not just the one incident, but look at the picture as a whole. And I, my, my question to you is this kind of as a major holy shit moment, how did that change? Like, so from that, when you pivoted then out of that and kind of got started, we got started on sort of this new path and what eventually turned into media link. How did you pull yourself up from that? Like what was, as I think that that's a really great lesson for people to hear, cause that can feel devastating. I know it can, I, you know, we've all had our versions of it. What I liked about it was that the judge was able to see much like you were just talking about. He was able to see beyond the, the specific of the law and see that your intent was actually good. Yeah, just so we don't keep it so mysterious. It wasn't something that I did where I took something and put it in my own pocket right. and, and, you know, went off to Brazil. It was yeah. it was Peter and Paul, but Peter and Paul were related. So it, it just not to make it sound worse than it was. It was bad right. enough, but I don't have to make it sound yeah. worse. But the yeah. truth is, the truth is, um, yeah, that was important to me because it was important to me that the um, judgment that I made was wrong, but it was for the right reason. Right. That's what, what helped me. But look, the how do you do it? Um, it, it? I will refer back to frenemies because one of the discomforts, and this is a very personal part of this story, and the last chapter of frenemies, I'm happy to say the title of it was something that was a quote from me where it was called No Rearview Mirror, Yep. And the reason for that was at that moment in time that I was referring to, I said it was the first time in 25 years that I didn't feel <clears throat> like I had a rear view mirror. I was looking forward, not behind me. Because the truth is, Julie, whilst this is never a comfortable conversation for me to have, it's way more comfortable now than it ever was. Yeah. And the truth is the liberation or the liberating feeling one gets when whatever their skeleton or whatever that baggage that you carry around as a person becomes known, it's easier to address. So where it's really helped me and in, in a corresponding way allowed me to help others even more, especially in the moment we're in, I think it's, I think it's super helpful. And it's, it's one I, I feel the same with too, where people will say things and I'll, I, like yeah, I was 35, like we all have our peace. Right. And I remember look, I, you know, I was before I was just at the coming of the digital age for mine, but my stuff popped up all over the place too. And it was like, Oh my God, is there nothing else to talk about? You know, and you just, and so you get it. But I, I, I think that I, I love the fact that your personal story allowed you to go above and beyond, but um, look, we're, we're, I, I want to, we, we could talk for hours and hours because you've got the best stories on the planet. There's no doubt about it. Um, tell me this. So now that you, for the world to know you have, you're, you're still part of media link, but you, you sold it. Um, you wildly successful. What is it that like, what is it that you are, are seeing, or what is your big picture 
ad- advice now, given the world where it is? I mean, we just talked about the Me Too's and we're, you know, we're talking about, you know, this, a lot of the inclusion and opportunities we have as a culture. But now that you're, you can kind of, and I know you don't really ever step away from your business, but now that you've, you've, you can have a different perspective, I think, from having sold the business and maybe feeling a little bit freer. What do you see for your kids and your grandkids? And what's the advice and kind of like your life lesson? Because again, this is all about what do we learn and how do we inspire others to get beyond? Yeah, look, Julie, it's four years that I sold my business. Yeah. So um, this week actually was four years. Oh, I'm proud to say, thank you. I'm proud to say that uh, I'm more active than ever. I'm busier than ever. Uh, I've not lost any of my kind of vim and vigor against the backdrop of an industry that is massively um, under siege in a good way. Uh, there is a, a funny stat that I talk about that we're at a moment in time where it seems like every word that's relevant in our business begins with the letter T. It's talent, it's transformation, it's transparency, it's trust, and it's technology. It's just funny that they all begin with the letter T. And being at the center of that in some way, shape, or form, my Hamilton um, affection tells me that MediaLink and I particularly have had the opportunity and the blessing of being in the room where it happens in this industry as much, if not more than anybody. And I'm as motivated as ever. So I think we are at a moment in time where opportunity is, is you know, uh, plentiful and um, those those words with T define where we're going as an industry. And if I look at any opportunity for a legacy beyond what I've done, it's to continue being in, 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 able to help people as they understand the need and, and the trust, the transparency, the technology, the importance of talent and, and, and the, you know, the, the, um, the technology and transformation changes. So I think it's so exciting. I have no less interest in my day job than I did four years ago. Uh, I let you know a little secret when, when I signed the documents to, and this is not self-aggrandizing, it's just honest, because I think one is successful in life when they, as I like to say, know their own joke. Like, if you know the joke that people are telling about you, then you control it. Mm-hmm. Whatever that means, whatever that means, the joke. And when I sat down with Duncan Painter, who's the CEO of Essential, my parent company, on the night we were signing the papers at a law firm in New York, I said, Duncan, you and I need a moment, just one-on-one. Can we go into one of those little huddle rooms over there? And I said, Not, no, no retrading. The deal's the deal. I just, I want to have a kind of an eye-to-eye one-on-one with you on something. He said, sure. And we sat down and I said, you know, Duncan, in the, in the entertainment industry, there's a concept. And that concept is when you deal with talent, you have to treat them like talent. I said, please don't take this as me being you know, self-aggrandizing, but I'm talent. And as long as you understand that and we operate like that, this is going to be a great relationship. And four years later, I'm happy to tell you it's been an amazing relationship and he got the joke. He understood that I understood myself. Yeah. I'm not a diva. You know that, Julie. I work yeah. as hard as anybody I know. Oh. Yes. I mean, I'm a hardworking, you know, guy and, and person. And, and, and so it's not like talent, like 
you know, again, being a diva mm-hmm. at all, but I roll a certain way. I know what I'm good at. I'm, I, I'm self-aware and just let me do it my way. Understanding full well that when I do go back in the other room and sign the paper, it says, you're my boss, Duncan. I get it. And I've had for only, you know, only really one other boss other than my wife, basically my whole life. So I'm not sure I'm going to be good at feeling like I work for somebody because I'm an entrepreneur and a, and a, and a, and a, a free spirit, but I, but I can do that. And I'm happy to say four years later, it's worked. It's worked really well. It's worked brilliantly. We're a great team. And it was important for me to be self-aware of exactly what I just said, that I'm used to rolling a certain way. Maybe I'm used to being treated a certain way. And I know that that works for me. So let me, let me continue to do that because it's obviously worked for you, Duncan. You're here buying my company. So don't, don't, don't scratch where it doesn't itch. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I love it. And it's, and I think that it's, um, I think that it's a, I think that it's good for people to hear that again, that the reason we do this podcast is I like people to hear the, the holy shit moments and we didn't even scratch the surface on all of them. We, you know, but as you do that, I think the holy part of the holy shit moments can be that despite, you know, what might have been something that held you back is that you still understand your self-worth. It propelled me forward. It didn't it, hold it, me it, back. It, I wasn't because because necessity being the mother of invention of course. and 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 my view that life isn't one episode, but a series of episodes. I wasn't going to let that episode take the show off the air. It wasn't going to happen. No. Nope. And it, I, I, I stood there with somebody once at the beginning of that journey at a really dark moment when the person said to me, um, oh, Michael, you're going to have to do this and this and this. And that. I went, no, 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 slow down. Like, this is true. I said, I don't know what you're used to dealing with. And then I stopped because I knew what this person was used to dealing with. So I paused and I said, well, actually, I do know what you're used to dealing with, but I'm different. Mm-hmm. I said, because if you're <coughs> telling me that my life as I know it is over at 42 years old, that's not acceptable to me. So I'm not that. what you're used to. That's true. Yeah. I'm just not because failure wasn't an option for me. I mean, it, it's a reality. Self- it's a reality, but it wasn't an option. But that self-worth carried you through that and through your just what you were just finished up with your your selling of your organization is understanding yourself and not letting anything anything take any of that away from you. Right. Well, Julie, I know, I know we've, 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 we've spent a fair amount of time. I don't know what our timing is, but oh, we're good. This you, is it. You've, you've gotten me, you've gotten me to talk about things that I don't talk about very often. Uh, and that's because you know, you're so damn good at what you do, Julie. I don't know about that, but I, I think that it's, look, I think that your story is, I, I want people to read your book because we couldn't begin to get into all the really fun stories of like, you know, carrying a, a Verizon and an AT&T cell phone and then having a Verizon client next to you, like, is what kind of phone is that? And then you throw or, or vice versa. It was one or the other. And you literally, it was AT&T, AT&T. And you literally threw the other one on the ground. And like, I just told that story today on another call. Julie. You did. That is so literally funny. told that story today. You have the best. I was describing story. my day yesterday where I went from this computer to the one on my left on two different zooms three times during the day. And I was afraid of hitting mute and stop video on the wrong one. So it reminded <laughs> me of that moment of grabbing the wrong phone. 
I'm a multitasker before multitasking was chic. It was. We, and you do it better than anybody else. So thank you. I, will, I hope everybody goes and reads Frenemies. Really, it's a fast read. And the best chapters are the ones. I honestly did a search in there for Casson. Those are the best chapters. I just, you know, I enjoyed the Sorrel ones too, but yours are the best chapters of the book. Uh, thank you for joining me and being here. It's been too long. Julie, forward to post-pandemic. I love you, Julie Rain. You're a good friend. And thank you for uh, having interest in me. Oh, you're the best. Thank you so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>